Live from the JLE in London, you're listening to History for the Curious, the podcast. 20 minutes with Rabbi Aubrey Hirsch, hosted by myself, Menat Reisner. Join us as we cross continents, sail through the centuries, tracing lives, uncovering events, and following epic journeys to reveal the untold stories and the mysteries that have impacted our history and shaped us into who we are today. And welcome back, Rabbi Hirsch. This is the final part of a four-part series on 16th century Poland. And I also want to thank you for veering off a bit last week to shed some clarity on what is quite a confusing stance to take. Are we pro-Ukraine? Are we anti? Right. And all of that. So thank you for that. And this is the last of the series. Yes. And this week we start with someone perhaps vaguely familiar, but in many ways relatively unknown, Rabbi Shaul Katznellenbeugen Val. We'll get to all of that. Isn't there a street named after him in Israel? Well, after the family, but not necessarily him. Right. He's a legendary figure, legendary in his achievements, not in his existence, because he was born in Italy in 1541 and was a wealthy and politically influential individual. But legend tells us that he occupied the throne of Poland on the 18th of August, 1587. And he has historically borne the nickname Le Roi d'un jour, which means king for a day. And it all starts in Padua, in Italy, where to this very day, there are a number of important 16th century graves in the older cemetery, Rav Meir Katzenelenbogum, the Maram Padua, who has a cat etched into the tombstone and was a cousin of the Ramal. He was the head of the Ashkenaz community of Padua, having originally studied under Rubiakov Polak in Poland, who we mentioned in part one of this series. His son, Rubschmol Yehuda Katzenelenbogen continued the legacy, and his son was Rubschol, and the University of Padua. Do we know about the cat etched in the grave? Well, Katzenelenbogen, although it's probably named after a German place or family, because they originated up north and then travelled south over the Alps. So the name means cat. Well, Ellenbogen is an elbow, so cat's uh, elbow, cat's but elbow. It's a, it is a very known name. Mm. So attends the University of Padua, and around 1560, he set out for Poland to study under the Marshal Plemeluria in Brisk. Brisk was becoming an important centre for Jewry, and the truth is, he might well have ended his days as a respected uh, rabbi there, had there not occurred one of those events that shape the uh, lives of individuals, or in his case, I guess, nations. The path of the Katzenelenbogens crossed with that of the Radzivils, the richest and most powerful nobles in Lithuania, 
who were prominent in Poland for several centuries. And what happens from there on is unusual, but historically verified. So you start with Nicholas Radzivill, who was the Marshal of the Court of Lithuania, the most important person in the country after the Grand Duke. And his two great-grandsons were given the title of uh, Prince of the Holy Roman Empire by Charles V. And their position within royalty was further strengthened by the King of Poland's marriage to their sister. But in the 1570s, Prince Nicholas decides to do penance for wrongs that he had committed whilst he was a young man. And he starts this by undertaking a pilgrimage to Rome. He consults the Pope as to what is the best thing for him to do to uh, expiate his sins. And the Pope tells him to dismiss all his servants and to live the life of a uh, wandering beggar for a few years. That's what he does. So here you have one of the most powerful sons of a royal family in Poland, and he just disappears off the map. He writes a diary, which actually ends up being printed in the very early 1600s. And in 1584, he makes a pilgrimage to the Holy Land. So after the end of his prescribed uh, time of penance, this Radzivill finds himself penniless. He's in Italy. He's in Padua. He's sold all the religious relics that he brought back with him, and nobody listens to his appeals for help and his story about being a prince. You know, they basically, you know, they just ridicule him. And he ends up making an appeal to Schmal Yehuda Katzenallenbogen, who, as we mentioned, was the Rav of Padua. And the Rav saw him for who he was in some ways. He, you know, receives him with respect. He treats him kindly and he gives him the means to return to Lithuania. So the prince asks the Rav how he can repay him. And he is told to look out for his son, Shol, and take him under his wing which he does in spades, because Radzivill and his friends favour Ravshol with appointments and make a pathway to his advancement to wealth and influence. Are there any connections between Poland and Italy? Well, first of all, in terms of universities, there are a number of people who would come to Italy to study or go to Krakow. It's a two-way traffic, but Italy was linked to the Polish dynasty at the time through the Queen, who was the daughter of the Duke of Milan, and her retinue includes Jewish doctors who are allowed to graduate in the university in Padua, and this Rav Scholl ends up owning ships, he acquires the sole rights to the salt mines in Wielitschka near Krakow, which are enormous in 1580, and the king leases him the salt pans in Lithuania, and given that salt was responsible for one-fifth of the crown's revenues, you understand that this is a, a major commercial concession, 
And he then pays 150,000 gold florins and is given the right to collect tolls on all the bridges and taxes on flour, brandy for 10 years. He becomes very wealthy. In 1589, King Sigismund gives him privileges. Uh, He grants him a place amongst the royal officials and is exempted... Um, from subordination to the jurisdiction of any of the courts of the land other than the king. He is called Servus Regis, the king's servant, and he becomes the king's principal agent in the expansion of commerce in Lithuania. From the 1580s onwards, he is also, from a Jewish perspective, one of the leaders of the community of Brisk, and he takes an important part in the Council of the Lands, the Vard, which we'll speak about shortly. And he persuades the king to alter the courts to judge disputes with Jews according to Polish law rather than the less favorable Prussian law. We also find him appealing to the king of Poland on behalf of the city of Brisk in 1595 after a fire. And Arya de Modena from Venice turns to him for help with the Rome community when it becomes impoverished, when they are in a, a ghetto. Does he have a family? Does he have children? Yes, he in fact had 13 children and is connected subsequently through marriage with some of the major families, rabbinic families and otherwise, through Eastern and Central Europe. His son, a mayor, named after his grandfather, becomes the head of the Bezdin in Brisk, and Rapshol builds a shul there, a Besamedrush there, public baths, many other things. In fact, when the shul was demolished in 1842, they find a plaque with the inscription that Shoal, son of the chief rabbi of Padua, uh, built this shawl in honor of his pious wife, Devera. So all of that is chronicled. We know all of that. But here's the interesting bit. When the king, Stephen Batori, died in 1586, the Poles were divided between wanting to be ruled by the Zamoyski family or the Zborowski family, which I'm sure you knew, right? Well, of course. Yes, okay. Now, Polish law at the time said that the throne cannot remain unoccupied for any length of time. And if the electors couldn't agree upon a king, an outsider should be appointed in a way that is known as rex pro tempore, which means a temporary king, and Radzivill proposes that Rapshol, Val, Katzenelenbogen be appointed as the temporary king, and he is elected. Now, tradition disagrees as to the length of his reign. Some say it was literally for one day, and others say a few days. And um, various historians, so Gustav Karpilis writes that there is what he calls an historical substratum to this uh, um, account. And uh, Mayor Balaban, who is the preeminent Polish Jewish historian, who's uh, buried in that enormous basic forest in Warsaw, writes a monograph in 1925 about him and the election. So it has 
some basis. Is this the first time in history a Jewish person has been crowned as king, even just for a day? I mean, it's unthinkable uh, <laughs> in, in Christian countries. So, you know, the, the idea that it should have happened more than once is um, highly <laughs> unlikely. And when's his name changed to Wall? So it is unclear. There are some that say that it was the king, Sigismund, who called him Val, which could be a reference to his Italian origin. And the Polish for the word ox is Val. And you find a similar type of name derivation applied to the Rothschild. So that could be a reason. Definitely less of a mouthful. Yes, that's for sure. Although the original name actually remains through the generations. There's another possibility, and one of his descendants, Rav Pinchas Katzenellenbeugen, to point out the use of that name, speaks of Rav election during this interregnum of 1587, and he says that the name Val means election, choosing literally in German, and it was given to him at the time, and what he writes, and I quote, um, Scholl was a favorite with the Polish nobleman, and highly esteemed for his shrewdness and ability. Evening fell, and they realized the impossibility of electing a king on the legally appointed day. So, loath to transgress their own rules, the nobles agreed to make Scholl king for the rest of the day and the following night, and thus conform with the letter of the law. And he is supposed to have used that 24 hours on behalf of the Jews, either to abolish decrees or write things that would equate Jewish life with the rights given to non-Jews with regards to blood libels and other matters. And in Polish and Lithuanian state documents, he is referred to as Szol Judicz, which means either Szol the Jew or son of Yehuda, which was one of his father's names. And we have a gold chain which he wore, which in his will he bequeaths to the poor, as well as a trust fund of 20,000 Polish gulden. And he has his own seal, his own signet, which displays a lion holding in its paw two tablets representing the Sarasadebrus. And in fact, some of his property title deed are still recorded in the mid-19th century. Where can these items be seen, the golden chain? So he had it in his will sold off for the benefit of the of the poor. So, you know, that wouldn't be around. I think I knew a few Katzenella Bogans. Does he still have family around today? Very much. The family line only grows sort of deeper and wider, and it becomes a very distinguished ancestral line within the Jewish world. There are very famous descendants, religious and non-religious, not all bearing that name. But you have, for instance, Yehudi Menuhin, Karl Marx, A.J. Heschel. You have the Avbesden of Hamburg, who is called Katzenallenbogen, who's still buried there in the Basic Forest. You have the great yeshiva dynasty of the Kotler family, and all of this with a legend to boot. So much for the individual. But now I'd like to deal with something that we've mentioned a few times in the past three weeks, the system of the Vad Arbarotsis, the Council of Four Lands, and to explain why it was so different and unique. This council existed from the 16th to the 18th centuries, and it would basically rule in many ways over the Jews, 
as well as representing them to the authorities, it would coordinate lobbying, particularly when communities came under attack, like in cases of blood libels. And it would create legislation, almost like a parliament. There would be elected delegates from each Jewish area in Poland, and they would cover a range of issues, uh, you know, economic life, security for Jews who are traveling, questions related to business practices, both in halacha and in actual practice, social takonas, sort of, you know, how much you're allowed to spend on a wedding, which was not only common to Poland, but other countries did so as well. But here it was broader. There were takonas about welfare, education for children, uh, running of yeshivas, the role of the rabbi. It was all regulated. Sounds like a more dramatic version of Agudah today. But this is far broader. We're talking all Jews being regulated by it and being seen by the king and by the non-Jewish government as the avenue, as the sole recourse to dealing with Jewish affairs. In fact, the king in 1533, it could have been, characterized one of their cases as a decision of the Supreme Court for the Jews. They would send their legal agents, their Stadlanim, to Warsaw during the sessions of the Polish parliament to represent Jewish interests to the government and delegates, and by means of diplomacy and sort of bribes, so privileges for the Jews were obtained or curtailments of their rights were prevented, they, they covered an enormous amount of bases for the Jews, and the Vard had a separate fund for these sort of emergencies made up of taxes from each of the four lands and each kehilla um, had to donate the amount that the surveyors of the kehilla estimated that they could afford and you know especially when there was a, a new king um, who they needed to confirm all the privileges that had been granted to the jews so they were you know very much present there and as well as all of this interaction with the non-Jews, they held their own courts. They tried cases between various kehillis, between individuals and communities. And they would also be the last sort of appeal court for community rabbinic courts. It was like a Supreme Court for halacha. And any general orders of the Vard would be read publicly in all shuls. And there would be the threat of excommunication for transgressors. So there was, you know, strict obedience to Kahal discipline. How did it end? It ended really when, well, it ended for two reasons. One was that the Jews by the mid-1700s were much more impoverished than they had been in the 1500s. And they were no longer able to raise the funds internally, externally. And also Poland's rulers had changed. The size of the country was dramatically diminished. The method of governance had changed. And it officially came to an end in 1764, but it would have come to an end within eight years because by 1772, Poland was already being swallowed up by other empires. So it was almost what you could call natural causes. Mm -hmm. 
I'll share some examples of what they achieved. So the Krakow Ledra in the Ramarshal recorded that no Jew was allowed to buy the rights for collecting taxes on alcoholic drinks. Typically, you'd buy the right from the king. It became outlawed. And it was written there that anyone transgresses this, he'll be excommunicated from both worlds, you know, this and the next, separated from all Kedushas Yisrael. His bread will be like non-Jewish bread. His wine will be Yain Nesach, and no rabbi or scholar will deal with the weddings of his sons and daughters, and no one will make a shidduch with him. And this is signed on Tuesday, the 15th of Kislev, in what was 1581. That sounds a bit harsh. Well, the truth of the matter is that this particular decree was actually disadvantageous to the Jews, and it was the confirmation of a government edict. But the council had to bring that decree into being because certain Jewish revenue farmers, as they were called, were arousing anti-Semitism through their greed. And so for the greater good, they had to legislate and legislate very strongly. In 1587, in the Posen Ledger, we find the prohibition of buying a rabbinical position with money, which was not uncommon in those days. And the signatories include the Levush from the Kliyakar, the Marshaw, the Maram of Lublin, the Shalot. So clearly something that was taken very seriously. These were, the, these were the heads of the Vat at the time? It's complicated, the relationship between the rabbis and the lay leaders. In a way, the lay leaders for much of the time had more say than the Rabbonim, but the Rabbonim had other means of relating to their own individual communities. Mm -hmm. And so for certain things, they got rabbis yep. to sign up. Yeah. As an example, perhaps the most famous and furthest reaching accomplishment was the Heta Iska. In 1607, Poland's leading rabbis, including the smart Shofalkakain, composed rules to deal with the problem of Jews extending credit to other Jews. And this allowed money to change hands. But rather than being a loan at interest, which is biblically prohibited, it was a deposit or an investment with specific conditions. It's used in many forms to this very day, both by individuals and in Israel by banks, and is a very far-reaching piece of halachic legislation dealing with commercial issues. And this Heta Iske is found at the back of the Shulchan Aruch in, in Yeridea, dealing with the laws of, of Ribis, of lending money with interest. And they also issued important rulings about the treatment of Jewish bankrupts. So, for instance, any money taken from creditors can be seized, and the person was required to take an oath, not only him, but his wife, that they had no hidden assets, you know, no offshore bank accounts, and uh, failure to own up to these could result in imprisonment. They would imprison people internally. They wouldn't hand them over to the non-Jewish authorities. They would have their own system for this. Really? I mean, for instance, if you go to Pshisk in the uh, middle of Poland, you'll find the stocks outside of the shul that people were tied to if they'd committed various misdemeanors. They wouldn't hand them over to the non-Jews. They would carry out their own form of uh, legislation. 
Although someone could always report them to the authorities. It was all no, illegal. The, the, no, the authorities were quite happy for them to, to be self-regulating. Yeah. The shomrim of yesteryear. It, but once <laughs> again, much broader. Yeah. And, you know, they could imprison people for 30 days, uh, up to a year. They would uh, carry that out. Wow. Beatings as well? Yeah, in the stocks. Oh, th those were for beatings, not just to be ties. Yeah. Wow. Yes. I mean, to what degree they carried it out, it didn't have the, so to speak, the brutality uh, that we associate with these things in the Middle Ages, but you had a, a concept of Malchus, yeah? Wow. And after the Khmelnytsky massacres, the Vard were the ones who instituted the 20th of Sivan as a special day of mourning, accepted it on themselves and their children to fast on that day because that's when the tragedy began in the community of Nimirov. And they were initially known as the Council of Five Lands, but in 1623, the Jews of Lithuania split off, created their own council representing the districts of Brisk and Grodna and Pinsk and Vilna and Slutsk. This has nothing to do with the split between Hasidim and the Litvaks that happens 150 years later, but they split nonetheless. And these council existed for nearly 200 years, based in Lublin and in Yaroslav. Well, thank you very much, Rabbi Hirsch. Uh, before we close these sessions, can I ask about the famous story regarding the remote and a wedding? I'm sure you're going to tell me it's not true, but I uh, thought I'd ask anyway. So it depends. Uh, it depends which wedding you're referring to, because there are two stories told about Moshe Isilis. One is true. The other one is almost certainly not. The properly sourced story is about a man who, having lost his wife, arranged for his daughter to be married and promised a sizable dowry. And during the engagement, the man passes away and an uncle takes the bride in and attempts to supply the promised amount. But on the wedding day, the bride is being prepared for the wedding. She's got a wedding gown. She's ready to get married, but the dowry has not yet been fully provided. And the host and the groom refuses to get married until the financial arrangements are completed. The uncle was not coming through with the full amount. And it is a Friday which was actually a common day to get married in Eastern Europe. And the rabbis attempt to convince the man to get married. Night falls, it's now Shabbos. And according to the testimony of the Ramaz students of Mordechai Tiktin in the Sefer Chedushe Anshishem, the Ramaz instructed that no one should daven, should recite the Shabbos davening of, of Mariv until the wedding had taken place. And he was concerned that if the wedding is delayed, that the chosen would break off the engagement entirely, or that the bride's relatives would back out of paying the dowry. And she is now an orphan girl with no dowry, and she would not overcome this shame and find a husband. So the remote insisted that everyone wait until the wedding is conducted. And finally, the man agrees. And two hours into Shabbos, the remote is the one who personally conducts the wedding and afterwards they doesn't marry if they prayed now the mishnah lists permissible activities that are forbidden on shabbos and yontif and among them is a wedding and the gemara asks why is a wedding considered simply a permissible activity and not a mitzvah activity to which rabbeinu tam in Tosfos says that were it to be a mitzvah 
it would be allowed, and therefore a first marriage would be allowed on Shabbos and Yontif, as opposed to a marriage where there are already children, and therefore it doesn't have the status of being a mitzvah. But the Rabbeinu Tam expresses hesitancy about implementing this leniency, and he would only allow it in the case of great need, and that's what the Ramah applied to this scenario. Now, there were a number of important rabbis who disagreed with the Ramah's decision, so he writes a responsum. It's in the Ramah, in his uh, in number 125, to defend his decision, and he explains the whole story, all that we've just mentioned. And in his commentary to the Shulchan Aruch in Erechaim, he also brings this halachic decision, but without the, the background and the history. And his colleagues decided that in the future we'll avoid this problem by forbidding weddings on Friday in Krakow. And I think this story shows you both the compassion and the broad shoulders of the Ramah, and you get a personal insight into somebody that we've described through his books and writings and the halachic decisions. That is definitely not the story I was talking about. Right. So. Okay. So the other story. <laughs> the exciting one. Yes. It claims that um, a couple of versions, but basically that one of the king's tax collectors in the times of the Ramah was a non-religious Jew who had changed his name to Stefan. He was a Kayin and he wanted to marry a divorcee. And of course... In halacha, that's not allowed, so the Ramah forbade the marriage and refused to marry off the couple. When the matter was brought before the king, he commanded the Ramah to marry the couple anyway. And the wedding was going to take place in the square. And just as the Ramah was about to begin officiating, he cursed the groom and bride. The ground opened up and swallowed the couple as they were. I assume this is the story you're referring to? Exactly. Right. I can't and, see why you would think this isn't true. Mm -hmm. And they claim that the fenced-off area near the Ramah Shul in the square is the place where it took place. And there is a permanent reminder yes. to this very day. And yeah, I've seen right. it. Uh -huh. I'm sure you have. Um, so, here are the reasons that make it unlikely. First off, the uh, fenced-off space nowadays just got some railings around it, but if you see pre-war photos, it's got an eight or nine-foot brick wall around it. It was the original cemetery of the mid-1500s uh, until prior to 1551. Secondly, there's no reliable record. <laughs> there's no record of this narrative at all, and it would have made an impact, especially if the place was sort of fenced off for centuries. The king would be unlikely to interfere in internal Jewish law. It's not impossible, but it's unlikely. Not impossible. No, no. And we do not find that the Ramal was the combative type. Now, obviously, he would have refused to conduct the wedding, but that he would curse people with death is just not in character of everything else we know about him and the way he dealt with outbreaks of machlokes of arguments just unlikely and very no record very poor arguments Rabbi Hirsch <laughs> right you're slightly desperate to hold on to this are you a bit yeah right. can't shred all my all the mother tales uh-huh 
Okay, thank you very much. I think that pretty much sums up 16th century Poland over those four series. Thank you for that. That was fascinating. Do we know what you're doing next? Oh, absolutely. The next series is very exciting. It is a collaboration between mm. myself and Rabbi Tatz on the Ramchal, or Moshechaim Lutzato, both history and Jewish thought, a two-week combined series not to be missed. Wow, that's very, very exciting. Bring the two podcasts together for a special. Um, we're looking very forward for that. Thank you again, and we'll see you next week. Thank for you. exciting new series. Thank you.